Just gonna stand there and watch me burn. Well, that's alright because I like the way it hurts. Just gonna stand there and hear me cry. Well, that's alright because I love the way you lie. I love the way you lie. I can't tell you what it really is. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 136 of the Antifada. I'm here with Andy, of course. Hello, hello. And we're happy to welcome Phil A. Neal, author of the excellent book, Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict. What's up, Phil? Hi, how's it going? Going quite well. You have written what is, I think, a very captivating book. Uh, It's part a very haunting memoir of your own um, experiences of of life and labor in the various, uh, I don't know, peripheral areas of capital and also the center as well. And it's also a critical analysis of um, the contemporary geography of what we can call the material community of capital at this moment. So we encourage everybody to check out Hinterland. Um, And in the meantime, we're happy to have you here to have a discussion of, uh, you know, some of the analysis you do, the main theses of the book, and then also, importantly, to talk about some of the dynamics of contemporary class struggle that have arisen since 2018 when your book came out. I also want to say really quickly, uh, you might hear some drums in the background. No, we're not at Zuccotti Park. <laughs> uh, just our neighbor is practicing drums. So, uh Sorry if that's annoying. It's apparently the great villain of, uh, of Jake's. He calls him the wagon wheel guy, <laughs> probably because he's constantly playing, rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. That probably is why he calls him that, yes. I, I would hope so. I mean, I don't know what, what else it could be about the guy's personality that he's a wagon wheel guy. Maybe how he dresses, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, uh, just to describe Hinterland, because it's a very unique book, I just want to uh, paraphrase or relate a story from the first chapter that I really like. You know what story it's going to be, Phil, if you, if you had to guess? Um, <laughs> from the first chapter? I, I, I could take a guess, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Rihanna train story. Great story. Oh, oh, from the first, first chapter. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, may, maybe you can tell it. You probably tell it better than me. Uh, but, yeah, well, it's part of this kind of... <clears throat> longer story of uh, to sort of understand it, you have to know a little bit about the uh, especially in like the early into the early 2010s um, riding trains in in China there was this uh, kind of standard where you could buy a ticket but not a seat and so you would uh, be riding these long uh, on these kind of long journeys uh, especially in western China where you could purchase a ticket that would allow you on the train, but you didn't have a right to like any of the seats. But then the whole deal is if it's kind of empty, you just kind of sit down and you negotiate with people for a seat or anything uh, like that. And so I was doing this train ride back from um, Guilin to to Kunming, I think. And it's pretty long uh, trip. It's, it's, uh, I want to say like 10 hours or something like that at the time. And I was just kind of I had, did not speak very much Chinese at the time. I uh, I had like this little. I didn't even have a, a phone. I think like a like a uh, a smartphone, right, with a dictionary on it. I had like an actual little paper dictionary, um, and so I was on this train, and it was actually very very busy. Uh, and so there wasn't. I had I had one of the cheap tickets where you didn't have a seat, and I was on the train for about like ten hours or something, and then. 
everyone who didn't have to have a seat kind of concentrated in between train cars where you could sort of lean up against like this weird opening space where they'd have a little window open. Everyone would smoke. This was like, especially in, in Western China at the time, like everyone was smoking all the time. Um, it was it, like in all forms of like public transit and, and everything like that. That's very um, standard in the process of proletarianization. Have you it is. And everyone also wore these great, I really regret not buying them at the time uh, because they wore these like great, like 90s style um, sweaters that are like, if you've ever been to like any of the convention centers in Detroit, like the designs on the carpet, mm. like this classic, like old school, just very weird, uh, almost like pixelized uh, design. Everyone had these these sweaters and was just smoking, like chain smoking nonstop. Um, and then there was all these, you know, people on the train who were, this was uh, when, you know, the people who, who don't have money for the seats are usually, uh, like the migrant workers going between jobs or going back to their home village or something along those lines. And so I was just kind of hanging out in between this area. People also had this, uh, they would pile the trash in between the cars. So there was this giant wall of trash. And so there were these people like climbing through the wall of trash and like getting <laughs> through it. People would come through uh, to go use the hot water for their like um, instant noodles. And then, so you've got, I was just smoke, kind of hanging. you've got chain oh, smoking, go chain smoking happening next to big piles of trash with like an open section with the tracks underneath it and a bunch of people hanging out. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Um, and it's also right next to the bathroom too. So, uh, it, it definitely like set a certain atmosphere, but there's, uh, there was this guy I was kind of hanging out with. It was him and his family. And he, I, uh, from talking to him, I realized that he was the same exact same age as me, but he had like uh, three kids and a wife and he'd been married for a while and he'd been working as a construction worker in the in the cities. Uh, and he was kind of going back at this point to um, I forget if he, he might have got off. I don't know, Nanning or somewhere, but he, he was, uh, you know, going back to, to work and bringing his family, but they had they had, were switching uh, jobs. And so he. Uh, very kind of kindly offered to let me periodically use the little folding stool that he had. Um, and so I would like sit there with him and chat uh, on this like folding stool and we'd share the folding stool. And then uh, we would communicate by like fingering through this like uh, paper dictionary, this tiny little paper dictionary and paper dictionaries in Chinese are like really a pain in the ass to use too. Um, so just the, you know, not having an alphabet type thing. Um, so it, it was this situation where like, kind of, what do we talk about, you know? And I asked him about his life a little bit and he was sort of into, you know, just telling me the basics and, and whatnot. And I sort of asked if he had, you know, was aware of like some of the strikes and riots and stuff that were going on at the time. And he kind of brushed it off. Uh, what, he, what, he, what he really wanted to talk about was his favorite song, <laughs> which was that uh, Rihanna song. And he had it on his phone. He kept playing it. Like it was some weird, uh, he had like one of those, um, Shanjai knockoff iPhones. And so he, um, he would just pl pull up this empathy and just keep playing it. And then he really wanted me to translate it for him. And I, I like, this was not something I could easily do at the time. Uh, but we kind of like sat there just kind of back and forth in between in this rocking train with people chain smoking in the trash and people like walking by with really hot bowls of noodles and, uh, and then people kind of gathered around as I was trying to uh, figure out like the best way to sort of translate this song. Now, this is um, uh, I love the way you lie Eminem featuring Rihanna, right? 
Yeah, I have this weird thing where uh, every time I've been in uh, Asia, at least, I have someone like playing some Eminem song, like repeatedly in my face. <laughs> um, so th- this was kind of like a, a recurrent theme for me. <laughs> but it stands uh, everywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's something very... Um, very global about that that conversation and it's a really good anecdote for your book because um, you're talking to this migrant uh, Chinese worker who is presumably in the hukou system I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but has like papers to, to move and temporarily work and then has to go home uh, very much a part of this process of proletarianization uh, in China over the last like 20 or 30 years or so but you're also listening to Rihanna at the same time so what's striking about the contemporary world that you describe in the book in hinterland is I found this sort of lack of any place or people outside of the nexus of capitalist social relations, right? Like capitalism arose in a small corner of Europe, you know, several centuries ago. And up until the 20th century, there were kind of no-go zones for capital, like whatever you want to call China or the USSR, right? There were impediments, encumbrances to capital and to the exploitation of of labor by capital. But now, uh, up like at the present moment, there's no exteriority anymore, right? There's like a, a fully global proletariat exploited by a fully global uh, capital. And this evaporation really of exteriority to capital has happened uh, just within our lifetime. So I guess the question is like, what does it mean for the present moment? How do you understand it in your book that uh, for the first time, there is no outside to capital, that capital is everywhere. And then in a sense, all people are caught in this global nexus of, um, of, ca- of cash, the cash nexus and exploitation. Yeah, the, so what, this is definitely the reason that I kind of opened the book with that sort of a story, because the thing that you kind of realize in those sort of conversations with people is that there's so many uh, things that are deeply, intimately familiar, like this dependence on the wage, having to, you know, uh, for me, moving from like the country in the U.S. to a, a city and having to deal with some of the same like just difficulties of, of doing that. Uh, and, you know, having to, having to constantly be looking for work and constantly be kind of in this precarious situation with regard to work all, in all of those cases, you, you kind of do really get this sense that there's kind of like this universal, um, maybe not like a universal experience, but like a universal subjection to like the same things. But at the same time, you realize that you're also kind of only really unified in, uh, in your difference. You only really unified in, in the ways that you plug in very, like very differently to the system in, in very different kind of places in different, uh, different levels of the division of uh, labor, the global division of labor. And also just, you know, all, all the other things that we might think of, like, um, uh, like cultural uh, background and family expectations and whatnot. And so kind of being face to face, um, you know, just with this guy, this random guy who happened to be the same age as me, there was all this kind of similarity, but at the same time, like this vast kind of gulf of, uh, of difference, there wasn't like a, even though we were both, you know, technically a uh, proletarian or whatever, there was not a, uh, that didn't necessarily have much of an automatic uh, affinity between it other than the most kind of general one. And then, uh, you know, Rihanna and Eminem, I guess, um, the, at the larger scale, this idea of, I guess you can kind of call it the, uh, 
you know, you know, people talk about it in different ways. I like the way that Kamat talks about it and the the kind of expansion of the material community of capital to like a truly global kind of community or species level community. And uh, you know, you can say this assumption of the you know rest of the world into the capitalist system or um, you know whatever. the The point is just that there is a key difference with with even relatively recent history. Now, depending on how you understand what was going on in, in Russia and China or whatever, like there's maybe some caveats about this, but essentially you have to admit that, you know, China's entry into the global proletariat and into the material community of capital, essentially it added more or less the amount of like total workforce uh, of, of potential like reserve army of labor. Um, there was like almost equivalent to the entire world's like employed population at the time. I mean, it was like a massive, um, uh, a massive kind of boon to the system in, in that sense. Uh, at the same time, you saw like this really rapid, you know, what's been called a depeasantization across the rest of the world, which isn't to say that there aren't any areas that don't have, um, people who would arguably be called peasants, but now you have situations where those remaining smaller subsistence economies are first interpenetrated often by some sort of market relationship, and second, are completely encircled, and that encirclement changes the nature of their own uh, social existence, uh, essentially. And, and so really when you're trying to find areas that are, you know, quote unquote, outside the capitalist system, uh, you know, maybe if you really narrow that definition, you can find some uncontacted peoples or something along those lines um, in some far off location. But even there, we're at a point where when we think about the actual nature and extent of capitalist production and the material community of capital, right? It's not just social, it's also ecological. And we're, so we're talking about a situation where even the most distant, uncontacted uh, peoples that we know nothing about are are themselves living in a, a climate that is literally shaped by the imperatives of capital, right? Not to mention having to deal with, uh, uh, you know, potential deforestation encroaching on, on their uh, lands or whatever. Um, so in that context, I think it's a really substantial difference. And theoretically, I was trying to make that, you know, kind of formulate that partially in the American context, but, you know, framing it in this global context. And that is one of the reasons why I use the term hinterland rather than the older term periphery, even though some of that logic is, is similar, right? Um, this older term of, of periphery and core periphery that comes from um, uh, dependency theory and, and is used by world systems theory stuff, you know, that really kind of depended on this logic that periphery also sort of meant peripheral to the capitalist system and proximate to some sort of non or pre-capitalist mode of production, right? That was, that was uh, still partially there or was, uh, you know, being in the process of being dismantled, but was there or was the site of potential like, um, uh, the old kind of unity of of some sort of socialist developmental project aligned with national liberation struggles, and it was peripheral in that sense, where you could you know advocate for for something like Ujamaa in in Tanzania um, because you were in a peripheral uh, condition that still had a lot of you know subsistence production and de facto uh, independence in certain ways. So so that's the main distinction that I. I try to draw with the use of the term hinterland and not using kind of older terms, which is that there is this fundamentally geographically changed kind of character to the material community of capital, where it now is legitimately a, a, a world community and a species community. Well, just to, to be a little bit more specific, when you, 
the the hinterlands that you write about in the book uh, include like rural regions in the North Pacific Northwest, uh, the uh, the suburbs of St. Louis, especially Ferguson. You uh, write about the Bundy Ranch as well, as I think it's in Nevada. So we're not just talking about like uh, you know rural China or uh, Tanzania. We're, t- we're we're it's it really focuses on uh, rural America or suburban America. Yeah, the the hinterland concept is basically the hinterland of capital, right? Mm-hmm. And so that means it's going to take different forms in different places, but it's it's ultimately defined by proximity to the kind of centers or the helm of accumulation uh, in the sense of like administrative power, managerial power, political power, et cetera, et cetera. So the places that really aren't what they used to call in like the 90s, you know, global cities. So like everywhere it's not a global city. Like, what does that actually look like? It's kind of a broad category in that sense. And that's why I subdivide it into what I call the near hinterland, where you're kind of close to those areas, um, but and, and, and serve a certain disavowed productive function. And that's often in suburban locations uh, or in hinterland, uh, particularly like hinterland cities, uh, which were really important in the, the last summer's rebellion. But also, you know, it includes the far hinterland, which is is more distant from those centers of accumulation. And in one sense, it means places like the rural U.S. It means places like rural China or even like very far distant um, places where you might still have some subsistence activity going on. But it also means places that have been really fully abandoned. So places that have been deindustrialized, like northeastern China or uh, northeastern, you know, U.S. cities, uh, places like Detroit, where you have... Uh, you know, the character of the place is almost like it's trying to revert to a certain rural aspect in, in certain respects where demolitions outpace construction, right? And so you have fields reopening kind of in the city. Um, but it, it's something where I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily categorize, you know, um, like inner city Detroit or something as similar or in the same uh, in the same sort of conceptual sphere as like rural Appalachia, but I'm saying if you judge it by by distance from accumulation, they have a lot of the same kind of conditions. Because we have, uh, and I think you put your finger well on this, uh, an entire new regime of uh, production and accumulation has arisen over the last you know 30, 40, 50 years. And so the idea of having a industrialized urban core surrounded by a wealthy uh, near suburb, and then having um, the rural areas be uh, separate, you know, from that, be, be on the outside of that, is uh, is gone in a lot of parts of the world. You describe very vividly how industry has been pulled out of the centers, whether that's Seattle or whether that's in China or New York City or wherever. And now so much production happens in that near hinterland. So talk about the importance of capitalist production and how those changes have uh, have changed our lives. Yeah, I think in one sense. In one sense, there is this this idea that things have really changed in the last 30, 40 years. And realistically, that's, you know, kind of true. Of course, it's always true in the sense that things are kind of always changing. Capital is always reinventing itself and its geographies and the territories of production and things like that. That's always in, in flux. Um, at the same time, 
there's there's kind of a lot of similarities and there's a lot of things preserved in in the kind of the fundamental logic even if certain technical capacities are possible now through uh, things like containerization which allows you know for a much greater geographic extent and length of of uh, logistics like corridors and those those linear linkages between production hubs uh, to just be longer essentially that's also of course undergirded by other advances not just containerization which gets kind of a lot of um, almost like a magical status when people talk about this stuff but the reality is is actually that if you look you know further back in history so rather than contrasting the last 30 or, or 40 years to the uh, period immediately preceding it and like the post-war period if we look back to like the turn of the last century right or even before that you actually saw a lot of uh, pretty similar rapid extensions. Um, so to go back to the case of, of um, East Africa that I mentioned briefly, I, I, I come back to it because I do some work there uh, looking at Chinese factories in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Um, you know, that was actually a period of, of huge logistics industrial boom in uh, along the Swahili coast. And the biggest industrial organization uh, in East African countries, for the most part, uh, at that in that time period, and this is under still like British colonial rule, um, mostly in that area, Italian a little bit um, uh, farther north. But the uh, largest industrial activity and organizational kind of efforts by workers were all in the logistics industries. They're all among port workers in places like Zanzibar. Um, and, um, and in uh, port cities in, in Kenya. And uh, I don't think that's coincidental, right? I, I, this is something that kind of does have a have a repeating kind of character where production happens, how it extends and the role of, of these logistics industries in it. So the role, uh, the central role of um, key hubs uh, for, for uh, the transit of goods, right? I also don't think people actually realize that this is actually very traditional in other senses in terms of uh, recruitment in in uh, you know far left uh, organizing projects when whether we're talking about like the organizing after the railroad strike in the u.s back in the 1870s or we're talking about the formation of the early um, chinese communist party a huge uh, base of early worker support for the chinese communist party was the uh like rail railroad workers right. in um especially the ones that would transit um uh, stuff out of the coal mines in like Anyuan coal mine would transit the uh, uh, coal from there to like these other kind of industrial centers. So that was like a, a integral thing because of course the logistics workers kind of come into contact with a bunch of um, uh, people up and down the division of labor. So in some sense, we're talking about something that's kind of not, not necessarily universal, but is I think older than we often uh, uh, frame it as, but the, the, the overall geography of this can be summarized pretty simply. It's that production still happens. It has to happen somewhere. We have this kind of illusion of a post-industrial uh, economy, right? Immaterial labor, immaterial value, whatever. That stuff that was really big in in uh, kind of po post-operismo, post-autonomous-like circles. Um, and that that sort of image is something that you see if you're, if you're in a city like, if you're in like San Francisco or if you're in downtown Seattle or if you're in, uh, you know, the middle of, of New York or something, you'll kind of look out from there and not really see necessarily production or you'll think that production just happens far distant. You know, you know think, oh, it, happens, it just happens in China, something like that. Um, 
But in, in reality, you know, production is often much closer than we really think. And in production in this broader sense of including kind of logistics, which means not only transiting, but often some level of processing and packaging um, uh, and even kind of final production stages uh, like assembly. Um that is much closer in, in, in many American cities. And I think a lot of people think like people don't think of Los Angeles as a, a major industrial hub, but it's one of the biggest industrial production hubs in the world, essentially. Of cannabis. Oil. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that idea uh, that production is actually much closer, right, is where I'm I'm trying to focus that that focus on in the concept of the near hinterland. There are these kind of productive sites that are largely um, peripheral to cities, but they're like kind of immediately peripheral to a lot of cities. And so, in in places like um, uh, most, pretty much all the major West Coast cities, they exist in inner ring suburbs. In the American kind of mega cities or, or large cities, uh, it's a little bit more complicated just because they're so big. They have multiple centers of accumulation, but essentially you're talking about the same thing. So it's kind of the contrast between like, um, you know, Hollywood and LA versus like the Inland Empire. Um, if you're talking about um, uh, like the entire American Southwest is kind of set up you know, in, in this kind of sprawling suburban sense, but it has these little cores of accumulation that maybe have this veneer of post-industrial aspect, uh, you know, character to them, but across like the, the really not even just the Southwest, the Southwest all, uh, all the way across to the Southeast, you have, uh, tons of, of renewed industrial production. You know, you have um, car factories and you have uh, like all kinds of, of logistics industry aside from that. So there is this idea that production is still kind of, you know, it's still there, um, even in some places where it's been heavily uh, mechanized, right? So like output might not have um, necessarily decreased in absolute terms for some sort of, um, you know, steel production in, in some northeastern uh, city, but uh, the number of workers employed there may have right. or very much did decline. Right. So there's these multiple kind of aspects to it. And in um, in the U.S., you also have to talk about basically hinterland cities. So. I don't think it's coincidental that there was like such big revolts in these places, which like, you know, who outside of maybe the immediate like Chicago area knew where like Rockford was um, before this stuff started happening or who knew where Kenosha was right. or who knew, uh, you know, where all of these, these kind of smaller areas that had like for their size and immediate history, like very admirably like courageous rebellions. Right. Cause going and doing that shit in those places is not the same as doing it in some city with like some established like leftist infrastructure. Like you have to be, you have to, like be much, much more brave to go do that in a city like that. Yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. Before I want to talk about, we want to talk about that connection between the uh, between the near hinterlands and revolt. But before we do that, we should not, of course, forget the far hinterlands. Uh, as we learn in your book, you yourself come from the far hinterlands in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, tell us a little bit about these these zones of accumulation or even these zones of dispossession, not only as, uh, as you experienced, but also how they, they and their politics uh, fit into the larger scheme. Yeah. Uh, there's, so there's a lot of ways to kind of further subdivide the, the far hinterland, but if we just think of it as, as this basic idea of distance from accumulation, right? 
these are the areas that are much further from accumulation, but they're still subsumed fully within the material community of capital, right? They're still in like the same hell world as everyone else. You still have to have a wage uh, to survive. You have to have some sort of money to survive. You have to uh, pay a rent or mortgage or, you know, whatever. There's some, there's land systems that if you go and just squat somewhere, you're like, it's not going to last in most of these places. Um, you can't really sustain yourself on subsistence production, even though sometimes you can live in the forest or whatever. So th that's the general context is that we're talking about areas which are still within the same kind of rules of engagement of capitalism, um, but which are distant from accumulation where there's like not really work or there's really, really not good work. Um, so in the U.S., what, what does that really look like? These are areas that are shaped like deeply by like a series of economic crises, which really are more just evidence of this long-term kind of secular breakdown of um, production over time. Um, but in many places like where I'm from, uh, which is like the area of like southernmost Oregon and northernmost California near the border, uh, it's it's something where it's kind of framed in terms of like, well, this industry collapsed. So first it was like mining and then it was timber and then there was the farm crisis. And then there was like the, you know, the great recession or, you know, whatever, like it just kind of has this sense of, it just keeps happening. Right. And each industry that's left just keeps getting like devastated. And, um, and a, a new industry that you describe in the book is fighting fire. Yeah. Yeah. So that area, um, Basically, what happens, you know, when you have a condition like that, you, you don't have any forms of employment, right? And so areas are are basically devoted to either the worst forms of kind of production processing, so like waste management, um, the most kind of violent and brutal aspects of American society that no one else really wants to acknowledge or deal with. So that's where, like, you know, you locate your prisons. And you have many of these small towns in rural America that essentially their entire economic model is to compete over getting a prison put there mm -hmm. right so that they can get an employment base so there's you know all these places that are essentially small uh prison cities right um and they're like terrifying like they're just absolutely terrifying places they're they're uh, some of them also once you get one prison you have the ability to kind of aggregate and get more and so there's some areas um in like the um uh the Southwest, especially that have like these pretty terrifying concentrations of like multiple um, prisons because they've just been able to sort of achieve an economy of scale with with that stuff. Um, and so so that, you know, that's sort of part of the economic structure where you, essentially you're depending on, uh, you know, the, the most violent or ugliest industries. And then, you know, included in there are all these new disaster industries that uh, relate to both climate change and to uh, just kind of long-term mismanagement in, in the case of wildfires of um, forests, in the case of um, um, other things of like uh, like flooding, et cetera, et cetera, or hurricane stuff. It's like public infrastructure or uh, really reckless like zoning laws in, in places like Houston. Um, you know, so those sort of things become huge employment kind of bases in those areas of basically disaster relief, which is, you know, seasonal and creates this very weird dependency where it's like, you know, half the population is really hoping for really bad fires so that they can have like a, a good season. Uh, and the other half is, you know, uh, just concerned that everything's going to burn down. And, and this leads to, um, as you described in the book, 
uh, a lot of strange politics. And Andy mentioned the the Bundy Ranch. Talk about what uh, what this dynamic has done to places like that in terms of how people understand their place in the world and, and what sort of world they want to see. Yeah, so it creates a really interesting dynamic because the employment structure in those places is no longer like clearly wage linked. Like you depend on money to survive, right? Some, a lot of that money is coming from kind of de facto illicit, illegal kind of outlaw style um, forms of, of production and distribution and whatnot. Uh, and that's not just, you know, what we would think of it as uh, in the sense of um, drugs and other kind of like it, uh, obviously like illegal activity or like the the TV portrayal of illegal activity. Like it could also be like just weird shit. That's also kind of, you know, illegal, like, like illegally raising food in the forest and stuff like that. Um, There's, so there's all this kind of black market, gray market stuff going on. People, um, you know, are are doing all kinds of uh, tiny kind of forms of of production pilferage kind of Um, at the same time, there's a small employment base that's left in, usually like agriculture, sometimes mining and timber, but all of that is dependent on this really intricate federal bureaucracy, right? So um, the the ranchers require uh, grazing rights and the miners require um, the mineral use rights. And all of that is granted through different agencies, right? If you wanna go in and harvest some timber, you're gonna go through the forest service, um, if you want to, um, you know, graze your cattle, you have to go through the Bureau of Land Management. And then there's this employment base of people who deal with that bureaucracy. There's the employment base of people who deal with things like, um, you know, the wildfires and other kind of disaster preparedness stuff, or just uh, like the tourist industry. And those people have more direct employment through um, the federal government or through some contractor relationship that's very clearly dependent on on federal um uh, federal money. So like firefighters, for example, you don't directly work for the forest service in, in many places. If you do, you would get a better deal. Uh, but if you are just a regular kind of wildland firefighter, you're usually working for some sort of contractor who's contracting with the forest service. Um, so it's this very weird kind of relationship. And what the ultimate point is that it all comes back to this very weird and tenuous dependence on what are essentially uh, just like second, third and fourth order rents extracted from production like somewhere and distributed through this weird bureaucratic chain of like federal uh, money. Right. Um, or it's something that's like, you know, industrial like waste management or, or something like that, but it's just like a very like ugly kind of industry or uh, 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 mining, right? Where it's it's kind of like still sort of brutal, but like you get paid like a lot to do it. And they have this kind of weird employment structure um, where you fly in for a couple of weeks and then you leave. Um, so in that context, like what kind of political consciousness does that sort of thing create? Well, it creates a very strong reaction to this idea of a uh, that kind of dependence on rents and on the government 
and B, the specific role of, of like who is perceived as like the oppressor in that situation. Well, it's like the ultimate authority of those rents, right? So it kind of naturally gravitates toward, in those instances, the federal government. And the reason that that's interesting, right, is because that sort of experience of class, that experience of class, not as primarily the wage relationship, but as this kind of more general form of getting just like screwed over constantly by people kind of taking stuff from you in different ways, right? Uh, these these different like extraction of, of kind of rents and just just directly getting like screwed over by a landlord and all that stuff. Um, that's a more general experience. And so the reason that I focus on that is not that um, it creates necessarily the actual basis, I talk about the militia movement and the Bundys and all of that back in the Obama years, which is when it was kind of at its peak and then it plateaued under Trump. And now under Biden, um, it, it's faced this kind of first dissolution in the face of um, that real challenge. And then it will probably recompose itself as something more dangerous um, in you know a couple of years time um, because it now has a, a clear enemy in the federal government again. But the ultimate idea there is that the thing that makes it dangerous is not so much that there's just like some white guys out in the desert with guns, right? There's really, at that time, it's not that many of them. They're, you know, clearly kind of outnumbered by the other rebellions going on that are of like a, a more noble character or whatever. Um, but the real kind of dangerous thing, the 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 kind of kernel that's in there that hints at something else, like something very, very scary that could happen, right, is the way that they're formulating this new kind of far right politics in relation to those sort of rents, uh, like almost as, um, you know, it's similar to how people kind of talk about today very, and I don't think this is like, I think this is really dumb if you think that you're like a communist and you're saying this stuff, but, you know, calling, um, saying, is it even capitalism anymore? Or is it like neo-feudalism? Yeah, that's a um, very common and dumb refrain. Yeah. And when people say like neo-feudalism, right? Like that's where I think you actually really start to get into that territory where the, these far right, um, positions can can really take off and and you know it's it's very similar logic to the idea of just like oh there's these these greedy financial barons who are just stealing everything and that's the problem right it's it's a um, mystification of of the the class dynamic but one that follows from how that class dynamic is mystified like you're saying this yeah, experience yeah. of rentierism yeah, and the idea that there are just like good salt of the earth people who are being fucked over by global finance capital and, you know, just evaporating all class distinction within that. Yeah, no, exactly. And the, so I think that right now we're at a point where like those two things haven't fused in like a dangerous way. But I think you can imagine, I think everyone can kind of imagine how that you know, might look. And, and I don't think people are really wary enough of it when we're looking at uh, the kind of language and framing of what we might think of as, as like, you know, just kind of generally soft left uh, democratic socialist type politics in the U S. Um, but, you know, it, it draws on a lot of the same um, 
key dynamics and key things. People get very confused, I think, because for for the kind of conventional view of what the far right is, right, they're far right because they just have like bad race politics or something like that. But they, they may have that. They almost always do because of the nature of how they conceive of the idea of community and, and things like that. Um, and it's inherently exclusionary and they have this particular fantasy of America. But a lot of those things, I, I don't think people could fully realize that a lot of those things can conceivably be shed and you could still have the movement be far right, you know, not that they will be shed in the U S I think it's very difficult. Uh, and this is actually one of the things that, uh, hampers the far right in the U S and the first, you know, uh, it, it, like a far right that wasn't as explicitly racist would have a lot more chance of surviving in the U S and would be a lot more scary. Right. Um, and I think that that's that's really where we have to look when we when we're thinking about like like forecasting kind of the danger of a real fascism, right? A real fascism in the sense of like a mass fascism, something that has a mass base and is a far right politics. We have to look for things that that kind of break out of those expected molds of like some white guy with a beard in the desert, right? We all know that's that's bad. And like to be suspicious and no one's going to trust that guy, right? Unless you're also one of those guys. Um, but that's not what like fascism is going to look like if it takes a, a mass character in the U.S., well, do you think it's something more along the lines of the Boogaloo Boys point to uh, like, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but one of them went on Jimmy Dore's show a month ago and he was like, look, I'm I'm not straight. I, I support BLM. I even support Antifa, all this stuff like I'm just against the government and like, yeah, I'm a capitalist, but, you know. I, I basically believe I'm basically an anarchist. And the reaction to that has been largely, no, he's secretly a fascist or he's secretly a racist. He's just tricking you. But I think that represents that we haven't really made a political distinction between what the right wants, what, what we want. And like, you know, even if we take him at his word, we have to like identify how that is reactionary. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I, people point to the Boogaloos and they point to... Um, the, the Proud Boys a little bit in this same kind of direction. The, this is something I point out about that or that Obama era militia movement is also that it like was very different than the 1990s militia movement, which had a much clearer link to like Christian fundamentalism and uh, kind of classic white supremacy. And the Obama era militia movement really emphasized these more kind of generic language that sort of took that racial component and put it in the background. It was sort of implied, right? And there's a lot of dog whistles going on, but it, it also guaranteed that they had this kind of uh, weird, persistent participation um, that was a little bit, What they, they were like still very much majority white, but it was like a little bit multiracial, right? Um, and a little bit like weird and a little bit like, you know, had some involvement from from people who would, who would say that sort of stuff, like, oh yeah, no, like I'm queer and I'm also like, really into all this libertarian shit. Um, you know, that's something which we we have to, I think, be more aware of because conceivably you can absolutely think of some sort of, um, you know, resurgent American fascist movement that's very nationalist and focuses on rebuilding national production and is explicitly anti-racist in the sense of like, like everyone's an American, right? but still hates immigrants who haven't gone through the proper channels and still engages in imperial conquest overseas. I don't think it's probable just because of the nature of 
like the the actual kind of material inertia of white supremacy and all of that stuff and the actual material processes of racialization in the US but like it's not something that you that's impossible to conceive of right so there is this idea that that people have a lot of um, leverage to just kind of make that that weird argument of like no we really believe in America and we want to rebuild American industry and we believe that like we should uh, everyone should be like everyone who's a citizen should be like equal and that we should have like a, a better system for naturalization but still have like a strong border because of the threat to American workers like you'll start to hear that shit a lot more uh, you already kind of do among people who might be categorized as like the right wing of like like social democratic politics or whatever but um, I think you'll start to hear it like a lot more as just a normal talking point there's uh in your book uh there's the possible um production of fascism <laughs> uh which we've just been talking about but there's also more positively in your book um some thoughts about the possible um conditions for and rise of a new communist politics i feel like um for people and i include myself in this who have been waiting for like a return to the uh, I don't know, 19th century SPD or the mid 20th century um, French Communist Party, these mass uh, democratic or semi-democratic mass working class uh, parties alongside mass unions in mass production. Uh, things can look pretty dire right now. But as you state in your book, there's a quote, the form of the return of the historical party is fundamentally shaped by the character of production. And you go on to talk about the ways that we see struggle rising now are different, but they're intimately tied, for all the reasons you point to in the book, to the way that things are produced, how uh, we produce, but also how we reproduce ourselves. So talk a little bit about that potential and what you see. Yeah. Uh, first, I, uh, I want to say I love the uh, like oratorical voice that you give me when you read the passage <laughs> that was me trying to uh to, to do the audio ver book version of you i suppose i don't know <laughs> yeah. um i so it, it's it's a situation where it's like very there's a very it's a very dark time in many ways at the same time i think a lot of people so one of the frustrating things about talking about the book uh when it came out right was that it sort of comes out in the aftermath of Trump's election, everyone wants to talk about Trump and the far right, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the actual um, content of the book, you know, the actual conclusion about the far right and the militia movement at the time is basically that that it's actually much, much weaker yes. than you would expect it to be if you presume all the things that like we often presume about the far right in the U.S. is that like all these rural people are, are racist or some shit like that. It's totally not true. Right. But it's also indicates actually that the far right, if all that was true, the far right should have done way better. And it didn't. It, it, it was small and it was kind of pathetic. And now we very much see that it's cartoonish even if it's dangerous right with uh, the cat the storming of the capital like it's it's this cartoonish kind of inept thing it's very dangerous in the same way that like you know someone who has like a lot of body weight and is like thrashing around wildly is kind of dangerous but it's not the same as like that person trying to fight you um so it can be very dangerous and deadly but the real 
point of talking about it in the book is also to say that there's actually this huge opening because the far right is so kind of cartoonish and pathetic at this point, um, that they are so disorganized, uh, that they don't have a, a real mass base, uh, and that they really, their activity pales in comparison to the rebellions that are like actually just kind of bubbling up constantly and getting bigger and bigger every uh, five years or so, right? So that's the real point of, of kind of political hope, even though I also emphasize, you know, the, the reality that there's there's all these fundamental limits in those kind of rebellions. And there's this inability to get over certain uh, initial kind of forms uh, of rebellion, even getting close to like something that might might soon be called like, uh, you know, near something that might soon approach like a city level insurrection. Like, I think that's conceivable within uh, the next decade in, in like some location in the U S. Um, but at the same time, it's something that's like immediately going to hit very, very clear limits because there's often not a, a logistical organizational, um, a capacity underneath it. I think a lot of people are kind of building that in this way that we don't recognize today. Uh, and we'll have to determine a lot of, um, you know, it's something that you only gets determined in the moment about like whether or not like whatever uh, thing that you call like an abolitionist mutual aid network is really going to like help with all the stolen and looted shit, <laughs> like when something happens again, right. or if they're going to be at that point so tied into like progressive NGO kind of commitments that they'll be like tentative about that and not engage um, when they have that capacity. I think that's something that you can only kind of see in the moment, but there is a lot of de facto kind of infrastructure and potential um, uh, potential for that sort of support. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't, that fact uh, doesn't mean that there isn't a persistent problem of, of, you know, coordination uh, or organization that, that we can't seem to kind of get over. Uh, and I think that the idea that it was kind of a natural given of the old like mass workers parties, uh, which is not what you're saying, but was, but is something that a lot of people kind of assume, like there was this given subject and it sort of made this automatic uh, process where it just seemed like natural to have like a workers party. I think people kind of forget how uh, intentional and, and expansive a lot of that like early workers movement stuff was and how important like like stuff entirely outside of like the the, the union movement was to that so things like you know i've written elsewhere um um and work with my friend uh, kyle uh, about like physical culture and like gyms and um the role of of uh that in building kind of you know old like old school communist power structures yeah and, and mutual aid essential. networks and mutual aid yeah and um, things like choral societies i mean you saw that in germany and you saw that in new york city you had like working class social choral societies that would come together on friday night and sing and then talk about communism <laughs> Yeah. And up here you had, um, uh, up here being in the Pacific Northwest, you had, um, like hiking clubs, right? Yeah. Actually, that's the origin of REI, <laughs> um, really? was like these like left wing hiking clubs where they would pull money to buy expensive gear for people who didn't have enough money. And, you and know, uh, just all this weird talk, stuff. Talk about the, uh, the de degeneration of the real movement. Huh? <laughs> well, no, REI is still giving away free stuff uh, in a way, just not, <laughs> not so explicitly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, you mentioned this like previous uh, kind of 
uh, like social unity within these movements, within the workers' movement. And I think some people misunderstand that as like they had the right idea back then on how to organize or like the left was better back then. But really, you know, it was just kind of the natural fact of like the way the productive process was where people were concentrating in cities and had to live in a tenement with like, you know, 30 people. And uh, a lot of them were immigrants and spoke the same language and that kind of stuff. And now the productive process is very uh, dependent on sprawl and suburbanization and separation. So a big question in your book is this question of unity in separation. So how do we get over the fact that... uh, yeah, like uh, like Ferguson, I think, is really the strongest part uh, of the book tackling this question is you've got like this suburb where everybody is being massively exploited by these ridiculous fines and subject to police violence. And like they finally come together and, and fight in this like beautiful, iconic riot. Uh, but then there's the there's a limit to that growth because it's just in Ferguson. Um, and even though the white suburbs next door are have like a lot of the similar a lot of similar situations, you know, they've got a little bit better off, but they're basically facing the same thing that doesn't spread. And so the the questions that you you ask about about this is how does a riot grow in a decentralized space and can a new communist politics emerge from capitalist sprawl? Yeah, and I think that well, so one thing that I do think we have to keep in mind is that with the American context, we kind of I think we kind of get too attached to this idea that old um old periods of worker movement like industrialization were like a lot more central uh, in in a geographic like urban geography sense. Um, If you look at at many other parts of the world, um, like today and historically, capitalist industrialization has always had a tendency to concentrate workers at the periphery of the city and uh, to concentrate industry kind of intermixed within uh, that that periphery. So it's suburban, but it's not what we think of when we say the word suburb, right? In the U.S., it has this like particular kind of flavor to it. But like, you know, they used to have like red suburbs in Paris. Essentially, you're just talking about like peripheral kind of uh, worker movement spaces. So in that sense, it is somewhat more similar, even if some of the issues of density and whatnot have this weird character, specifically in America, because people are now inhabiting instead of a bunch of people in, you know, a, a tenement that might be in a in a kind of suburban um, area in uh, somewhere in, in Europe or, or whatever, um, or a contemporary um, industrial slum in in anywhere else in the world, you might have, um, you know, two, three multi-generation families living in a single, like, large-ish post-war construction, like, suburban house in an American suburb, Um, but there's still, you know, and then some of them will go and, like, work at, like, the Amazon Fulfillment Center at the airport, and then some will go and drive up into the city and work um, in food service and you know, that sort of thing. Um, so you still kind of have some of those same qualities. I think the bigger divide is, um, so in some places it, it, it's more a matter of, of the it kind of immediate prospects and kind of generational prospects. So in, in places which have like these robust kind of logistic cities that have been built up around, um, uh, you know, a city like Seattle and also actually Minneapolis, um, you have, this kind of sense where there's a large working class population that is employed in like this logistics production, but comes from backgrounds where they know that, you know, it's much better than the alternative. So maybe they've immigrated there from, 
East Africa uh, in the nineties or something, or they come from like, you know, the like Appalachian, like rural parts of the, of the Appalachian U S right. And so they know like what the alternative is. And so they see it as like this limit, but then you have to think, well, what are their kids, you know, see it as, and I don't think it was really coincidental that when you looked at who was coming into central cities this last summer and participating in the rebellion, right. It was very clear that there was a lot of like younger people who lived in these new kind of inner ring proletarian like suburbs. Right. Um, but it wasn't necessarily the parents. So I think there is like a, a sort of, um, you know, a generational aspect to it. There's also just this aspect of like, well, well, then what happens when those industries like suffer a pretty severe downturn and you have something different? Uh, suburbs like Ferguson are in a different kind of condition because they're places where you have this kind of persistence of that uh, decline and deindustrialization. You have like a lot of the traditional forms in the U.S., what we think of as kind of traditional forms of like inner city poverty, kind of just extending out into like usually in one direction out um, into like a particular suburb and they sort of spread um, beyond that. Um, and the, you know, um, the form that that takes is, is like this much, much more explicit, like onerous extraction of rents from the population to fund like these, you know, police departments and uh, even, even like the school district and stuff. And they're re- relying on fines, you know, uh, placed on the population and predominantly placed uh, on the black population. And then in other places you can, you see the same thing, but it's, um, uh, you know, it's indigenous people or it's, it's, you know, along the border or something uh, along those lines, but you're still kind of doing the same thing in, in the, in the fiscal sense where you're just um, extracting these rents from people, right. And the police are the point of extraction. So the police become the point of uh, opposition. And so uh, in, in many senses, I think that you have a, a situation where, there's a lot of um, kind of potential in that, but it also has this kind of limiting factor where it's very hard to to leap over that. Um, first of all, that localized sense, like when an individual uh, officer of an individual police department kills somebody, right? Like there, there's this kind of focus on on that specific process, right? Um, and sometimes it will generalize and more things will happen. And then it takes on a life of its own. But then I think that this summer was a very good sign that there's like much more willingness now, at least to like, for it to just generalize immediately, like a lot of places and especially in extremely unexpected places. At the same time, there were like a lot of the same limits that we saw over the previous decade still manifested, but you just had like, like way way larger numbers of participants um, and you had a lot more innovation from um, from people because you had more of the uh, more of that kind of general participation when we're talking about the innovation that kind of ability to coordinate and uh, organize and like people who think of uh, these riots and stuff as like unorganized like that's kind of a misnomer right it takes like a lot of um, organization to do a lot of the stuff that you know happened um, but at the same time, it's not necessarily like like this really formal type of, of organization. Uh, but we did see like these innovative tactics that began in Ferguson extend in 
uh, in the summer of 2020. One of the most important ones that I write about, not I don't think I mentioned it in the book, but it's in an earlier article about Ferguson called um, New Ghettos Burning, um, about the suburbanization of poverty and, and how it kind of relates. Um, it's on the importance of, of cars um, in these sprawling spaces and how integral cars become. And this was really one of the first big rebellions. Ferguson had it as well, but this um, was one of the big rebellions uh, uh, this last year that made use of of you know cars of just all type in um yeah having all kinds of functions of, yeah we discussed uh, this with barricades uh, yeah with shaman and arturo and they, they've got a article about the riot cars um yeah that's right but you know right, another um, another innovation that i wanted to bring up and uh this is the we're this is going to re- be released right around the 150th anniversary of the start of the paris commune and I was thinking, and you mentioned earlier that like there's a there's a possibility of there being like a citywide insurrection somewhere in the United States in, in the near future. Um, and I was thinking about like what that might look like, and I was wondering if the Chaz, the the Seattle Autonomous Zone, although uh, there's been a lot of great reflections on like what went wrong there and how it was limited by you know in, interpersonal dynamics and like the political imaginary of the people involved. If uh, that that kind of interest in creating like an autonomous zone, taking territory in the heart of a major city might point in the direction of this like uh, this this general desire to, you know, take an entire city back the way they did in the commune in the face of crisis. Yeah, uh, I mean, I really hope it doesn't look like the chess if that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I I was there uh, not as like somebody who tried to be there every day because that would have been uh, really draining, but like all the nights leading up to it. Um, and then when it happened, um, you know, would, would be there most days, but like, um, it was something that was very clearly, well, I guess I could frame it like this. Like usually I think in the, in the conditions that we're in, when the movement turns to, the attempt to seize territory and especially the attempt to seize really central kind of high value, you know, what's essentially enemy territory, right. And to hold it. I think that's usually the point at which you can identify that the movement has like died, that whatever was really going on has, has reached a point where it's now very clearly, um, been kind of contained it's been contained both kind of literally in the sense that whenever you do that it immediately leads to a very easy encirclement because you have a disproportion of power right this isn't like building like the old uh you know soviets in in the south of china back in the day where you could just disappear into the hills right uh this is like something where you're not you don't have that kind of capacity to go hide um and get away from you know power when you're doing this it's also not really something where you 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 know you have something where you're able to um have even even the kind of illusion of, of the ability to maybe militarily hold the space that you might've had in the Paris commune. Um, like you just don't have that capacity anymore. And so I think that, you know, unless you're talking about something where like, we're really talking about 
like a national scale insurrection where you have, you know, a third of the military defect or something like we're not talking about that sort of situation. We're talking about something where this like some, uh, maybe not in the near future, but like, you know, in a decade or something, um, you know, some normal kind of like big riot thing just kind of keeps happening and keeps getting bigger for some reason, some, some sort of, uh, confluence of factors allows it to take this shape in a particular place and that that go, gets to such a scale that like you have something going on where it's got some sort of level of mass support and then there's just like this very like you know initial defeat of like local police departments or, or, or whatever and like an effective uh a, a momentarily effective you know method of like barricading the city like that's not going to work right it's that's going to also fail and in something i wrote recently i don't know i don't really remember where like that there's going to be a couple limits to that the first limit obviously is that you're going to run out of food um the second limit right is just going to be this clear kind of military kind of limit um i think that the territorial turn is going to be a a losing losing thing in most places in the u.s except for in some limited instances of like yeah if you had like a really robust like left wing ish uh rural rebellion somewhere like i think you could conceive like that uh, in a more territorial kind of form because you have some of that capacity left but even there you're really talking about a situation where you know you can't really hide very well um the territorial turn was like a negative turn uh in in seattle and it was a it was something which 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 returned both the the return both the kind of logic of the movement back to kind of this earlier logic of, of kind of protest and discourse and um, creating uh, a space like for ourselves or for like a quote unquote, the community or things like that. And that of course brings all of the attendant problems of like, who is that community who speaks for it, who can carry guns around here. Right. Um, And then how does, any of this work. And then you're facing, of course, the constant attacks from, um, you know, all quarters against that and like often very literal attacks. Right. Um, it's also something that the intelligent police departments, like not, uh, like in the sense of like cunning and having experience with aggressive protests kind of over long periods of time, the thing that many of them will do is seed territory because they know that that's the outcome. They did it. They, the most miserable thing I think about the uh, the Chaz and the whole sequence in in Seattle, right, was that I could return to like these parts of the book that just described exactly what happened, uh, what was happening, like in front of my eyes then, but also had uh, happened back when I, you know, was was in. Um, like Occupy and, and kind of the aftermath of it. And it was just like the same playbook. It was literally the same thing. And they were just, uh, you know, you know, using that same strategy at a slightly larger scale. Um, and it was, so it wasn't really surprising that they would seed uh, a police precinct, right? Because they had seeded territory previously as a clear part of their strate- strategic approach to containing uh, protests like that. And they always do that when there's a certain number where they can't oppose people, they allow, uh, they kind of wall off the section of downtown. They allow the smashing to happen to burn itself out, and they try this kind of larger kind of kettling and dispersal thing. I think that uh, your your answer just implied what I was getting at about what maybe could have happened or should have happened instead of the the chaz. 
And you write about this more in a piece for the Brooklyn Rail over the summer called Crowned Plague, which is about life under the pandemic and the the uprising that happened under it. And it's a really fascinating piece. So that's that'll be in the show notes. Uh, and you quote uh, one of my favorite books that I recommend everybody read uh, annually, if possible, <laughs> Nihilist Communism. It's a great time to go back and read <laughs> Nihilist Communism by the Messieurs Dupont. I'll just read the quote. Um, Everything in the world is made, and power derives from the control of this making. If the making is stopped, then the source of this power is interrupted. When industry stops, everything in society, otherwise absolutely determined by it, floats free from its gravity. In this particular crisis of capitalism, all hell breaks loose. Then comes the time for organization. That's the key. You can call that consciousness if you want. We don't care. So what were you getting at when, when you quoted this? Yeah, I think that the, I also constantly kind of return to that book. Um, and I think it's got like a lot of really good little nuggets like that. Uh, it, the, the real focus there is, well, it's two main things. First, I think it's, it's just this reminder that we're at this limit where we're kind of constantly almost broaching like the the initial, the most rudimentary questions of like the productive sphere. And that's mostly being posed just by like the size of what's been happening and where people themselves live. But something that I've talked about, um, not, not a whole lot in writing, I guess, but like something that's been kind of a continual uh, point of focus for various like podcast uh, things talking about the rebellion in the summer was... Uh, you know, that you do have this persistent weird phenomenon where a lot of people who essentially live very close to really core productive infrastructure, uh, who live in this near hinterland area, are literally like driving in or busing in or, you know, somehow getting to down the downtown area where the main protests are happening. And then they're going and participating in all that. And that's great. You know, I like I everyone loves to see a down like a wealthy downtown of a global city just absolutely looted to shit. We love everyone to loves see that. it, folks. We love it. Yeah. So it's it's just, you know, it, that's fun, whatever. But like really there's not when you add up all the goods, right? Like even if you're just interested in getting shit, like in, in free shit army stuff, like classic, like I, I want this nice jacket, right? Even if you're just interested in that, it doesn't actually make a whole lot of um, sense because there's so much more of that stuff, like literally close to your house in the Amazon fulfillment center, right? right? Or in the, the, I don't know, the Kroger warehouse. <laughs> like there is just so much uh, uh, more, you know, even in anyone's terms. And there's this weird magnetism still toward like the hollow kind of halls of power, these uh, formal kind of state um, symbols of the state and formal symbols of power. And of course the police, but people also forget that the police have infrastructure. The police have, uh, you know, warehouses that are located in places. The police are supplied by, um, uh, by often where they, they all locally contract for like ammunition and stuff. And often that comes from like shooting ranges that are located in these suburban areas. People kind of forget that, that aspect as well. And often you have these very, very weird and very frustrating kind of, um, situations where you have this kind of activist social movement core really trying to draw people to like uh, down, downtown like Louisville is, is a great example 
really, really trying to draw people to downtown Louisville to protest, right? And then the police are barricading everything off and they're walling off the, all the federal uh, buildings and the state buildings and all that. Uh, at the same time, you have like all these poor areas that are located right next to like this giant, you know, um, super logistics hub of the uh, UPS world port at the airport. And then there's like an old industrial area um, there that's like in, well, this, this historically black neighborhood that's uh, essentially a, uh, in that inner ring suburb relative to the size of, of Louisville. Right. And so you have this very weird phenomenon where people try to this kind of, activist discursive logic is like we have to go talk to those in power and oppose those in power and oppose kind of the police at the point of their their deployment right rather than um confronting kind of the real logistics of power right and uh we can always quote uh the invisible committee or or tycoon here and say that you know power is logistic um i think that's a great place to end it because we've been on this on this podcast teasing i think um with a lot of the implications uh, from last summer and uh, looking at a lot of the same limitations. And I think Hinterland, your book, um, which everybody, of course, should go and pick up, uh, kind of gives us, gives us some explanation uh, for why the things uh, that have been happening look, look the way they do and why we feel so far away from production and yet we all seem so imbricated in, uh, in capitalist life. So, Phil, um, anything you want to say before we uh, head out? I want to add something really quick. Cool. Fast, oh, yeah, which is a, another thing that you point out in the, the Ferguson chapter uh, is you describe the period in between uh, the, the murder and Darren Wilson's trial or, or non-trial. And, and we're basically in that moment now where they're selecting uh, Derek Chauvin's uh, uh, jury. So the trial's about to happen. And we're already seeing protests, pretty rowdy protests start in uh, Minneapolis, but also in Chicago. And I, I think... It's important to talk about what happened last summer now because I think we're going to see it again in a couple of months. And you know, if for for people like us who care about uh, care about struggle and you know in whatever way, we I think we got to start thinking about what we're going to do when uh, when that uprising comes back because I think it will. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think a lot of people are very wary of this um, as well because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people who essentially like kind of know what you should do, but saying it is a federal crime (laughs) and it's also a uh maybe maybe an offense on a podcast as well so maybe we should just leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) phil thank you so much this was excellent yeah no problem Things that we didn't mean 